today I wanted to do a review on the movie Thor Love and Thunder starring Chris Hemsworth and produced by Marvel Studios. And I gotta admit, like full disclosure, I liked uh, Thor Ragnarok a lot better. But that said, you know, there's a scene kind of near the end of the movie which is really kind of powerful. And for our purposes today, I want to focus on that particular scene and draw out certain Christian themes which kind of emerge from that particular scene. So as a matter of background, the main character, Thor, he's this comic book hero based on the Norse god of thunder. And basically in the first couple of movies, his main uh, weapon is this hammer called Molnir. And later on, he has this other weapon called Stormbreaker, which is basically this big axe. Uh, anyways, um, his girlfriend from the first movie, Jane Foster, played by Natalie Portman, it turns out in the context of this movie, um, she's developed stage four cancer. But she discovers that by wielding Molnir, she's able to stave off the cancer, right? So whenever she holds the hammer, she becomes a female version of the Mighty Thor. She's strong, she's powerful and whatnot, but the moment she lets go of the hammer, she becomes, again, this, this weak mortal who's dying of stage four cancer. Anyways, near the end of the film, there's this twist where Thor discovers that every time that Jane Foster uses the hammer, actually because she's just a normal human being, the hammer is slowly draining away her life force. So she has, as a result, less energy to fight the cancer. And it's gotten to the point that basically if she uses the hammer one more time to become, again, a female version of the mighty Thor, she'll basically die. And this gives rise to what I believe, in my opinion, is the best scene in the entire film, right? So Jane Foster is arguing with Thor. She wants to join him in this fight against the, the big baddie, you know, Gore the God Butcher, played by Christian Bale. And she's frustrated with just being sick, by just being a sick, frail human being dying of stage four cancer in this hospital bed. And the argument goes back and forth until finally Jane Foster says, like, why should I stay here? In response to which, in this show of raw emotion, Thor just says, like, because I love you. Right? And that basically ends the argument. And again, from my own perspective, as a Christian, as a priest, that particular scene and that particular line as spoken by the mighty Thor evoked all sorts of thoughts and ideas from a Christian perspective. So I want to spend the remainder of this reflection talking about precisely that. And so the first idea that comes to mind is this notion that there is this recurring temptation, I think, for all of us to think or conclude in our minds that God doesn't care or God doesn't love us because we find ourselves in precarious situations. Situations which are painful, difficult, or otherwise don't meet our kind of narrow expectations for how things actually should play out. And so think, for example, the book of Genesis, where the serpent speaks to Eve and says to her, Did God say that you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Already trying to plant in her heart seeds of doubt. Doubt in God's goodness, doubt in God's fatherhood. Or to use a slightly different example, think about the story of Lazarus, right, where his sister Martha basically chides Jesus, saying to him, like, look, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, thereby strongly implying that he doesn't care, because, like, look, if you cared, you would have been here, and again, my brother would not have died. Or think about that really famous story where the disciples are afraid in the midst of that storm, where they basically wake Jesus up and say to him, look, don't you care that we are perishing? So again, here's this idea that because we find ourselves in a precarious situation where we hear the wind and the waves and we're getting wet and whatnot, therefore, Lord, you don't care. Therefore, Lord, you don't love us. But you see, in contrast to all these various moments of distrust in God's goodness and again in his fatherhood, we're called to remember and indeed commanded to remember that God is the one who counts every hair in our heads. As we hear in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, he is the one of whom the psalmist speaks when he says, Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his faithful, as we hear in Psalm 118. And so given all that, the basic idea here, as articulated in the words of St. Therese of Lisieux, is this notion that there is no such thing as unnecessary suffering. 
And so whether you're suffering from a paper cut or stage four cancer, you still got to trust and believe that even this particular thing, even though it's painful, even though it's unexpected, is very much within the scope of God's providential care. And again, a precious in the eyes of the Lord is a death of his faithful. And so therefore, this particular moment of suffering somehow in some way is serving his salvific purposes. God allows evil to bring about a greater good. You know, that said, the thing we got to keep in mind is that whenever we find ourselves in situations such as these, again, unexpected, painful, and precarious situations, such as a prolonged situation of illness, just because we're not being active in the classical or worldly sense, it does not mean that nothing is happening. In the same way that we got to remember that when Christ was suffering and dying, nailed to the cross, it's not like he was doing nothing, but instead he was actually bringing about the salvation of the world because he was praying and suffering in obedience to his Father in heaven. And so they also the point, think about the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22, the parable of the wedding feast, arguably one of Jesus' most provocative parables. And so basically, as the story goes, there's this king who has a son who's getting married, and he invites various people to attend the wedding of his son. And at first they refuse by giving excuses like, you know, I'm too busy and whatnot. But then eventually things get really tense and violent, and so they, they beat the messengers who are extending the invitation before finally killing the messengers, as a result of which the king is obviously irate. And it's meant to be a really provocative point in the story, right? Because it kind of begs the question, why beat and then kill the slaves? Why not just like send back the RCP card with the box ticked off? No, right? And it speaks to this really important point when it comes to the human condition. We find it really difficult to be still. We find it really difficult to not be active. And so shades of Blaise Pascal, who says very famously that the reason why we're so unhappy is because we're so unable to be still and be alone in a room, right? So we just have to be busy because we find it really uncomfortable to be still and do nothing. But you see, just to kind of bring it back to the parable, it's kind of interesting that throughout the course of the story, there's never any mention of a bride, right? So there's a wedding, there's a king, there's a son, but again, no bride. And if you read between the lines, basically the idea is that the people invited to the wedding, they are meant collectively to be the bride, right? So they're being invited to not just a wedding, they're being invited to their wedding. And so given all that, the takeaway message in a certain sense is to realize that an important prerequisite to intimacy with God, an important prerequisite to becoming a spouse to God the Father through His only begotten Son, is to learn to separate my identity and self-worth from my productivities or efficiencies, to learn to become useless in a certain sense, to realize that the sum of who I am is the sum of my Father's love for me, no more and no less. Okay, one final note, and I'll kind of end with this. So whenever we find ourselves, again, in these situations where we're suffering and our suffering never seems to end, there is often the recurring temptation to think that we're just kind of idiots for, for not rebelling openly against the Lord. But in those situations, perhaps it might be helpful to refer back to the gospel and again to Jesus suffering on the cross, right? And so what did the scribes and Pharisees say to him when he's just nailed her to the cross, seemingly doing nothing? They say to him some variation of like, look, if you're the son of God, you will come down from the cross, right? Of course he doesn't. And the reality is that because he's the Son of God, because he has deep trust and faith in his Father in heaven, that's why he doesn't come down. And so again, shades of the scene from Thor, Love and Thunder. Why should I stay here? Because I love you. And, and so it goes with us, right? And so whenever we too find ourselves in comparable situations, again, prolonged periods of suffering, and there is this temptation to think like, I'm just going through this thing and, and not rebelling against God because I'm stupid, because I'm an idiot. We would do well to remember that the reason why ultimately we are persevering in this regard is because we have deep trust. Deep trust in God's goodness, deep trust in God's fatherhood. The reason why you're doing this is because ultimately 
you love God who has loved you first. And may God bless you all.